Getting Smart, we believe in the power of networks, communities, and uniting around a common purpose. Our next Smart Sprint, a two-week cohort-based learning experience focused on building a shared vision, kicks off on January 24th, 2022. We'd love for you, your district, or your organization to be a part of it. Learn more at gettingsmart.com slash smart sprints or at the link in the show notes. All right, let's jump in. Greg, what is the 3C economy? I'm glad you asked. Uh, so, you know, the 3C economy is is something that we sort of envision um, kind of taking shape over the next 20, 30 years. It really, the 3Cs stand for um, caring, creating, and cyber curating ethics. Um, and the context in which we talk about them is sort of thinking, trying to think ahead about, um, you know, what are the... What are the things that humans do best and the things we don't want to replace them in doing? Um, and so, you know, the first two are kind of obvious, creating. Um, you know, we as humans love to experience the creations of, of, of our fellow humans, whether that's music or art or, uh, you know, clothing, knitting sweaters, um, any kind of creation at all, any, any kind of creative act. Um, Sure, machines can do that, and machines actually do do that to a certain extent, but we get a thrill from people doing that. Um, caring is the second one. Uh, caring, you know, it's also pretty obvious. Um, you know, the, the most advanced AI can tell me um, if that little spot on my back is cancerous. Um, it does a better job, actually, than um, a lot of uh, humans who would be reading the same slide we're looking at the same photo, but if it's really bad, I want a, I want a human telling me. I want, I want an actual person holding my hand and telling me what my options are. And, you know, um, again, putting it in context, telling me how long I have to live, what, what should I be looking at? And then cyber curating ethics is maybe the, the one that people wouldn't be thinking of sort of uh, in the same terms, but that's just trying to, as humans, trying to sort of think about what all this stuff means, what all this uh, technology means in our lives, whether it's dealing with, you know, the results of AI and, you know, warfare or thinking through the problems of self-driving uh, trucks on crowded highways or, you know, any number of, um, any number of scenarios that we really still do need people to kind of be in the driver's seat about. Right. I, I loved your discussion of cyber curating. Um, it's really about updating our um, our social compact and our um, our shared values. And I, I really appreciated that you, um, that you called out um, the consideration of unintended consequences. Um, <laughs> what are all the ways that this could go wrong? Hey, you're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderark, and today I'm joined by Greg Tapo and Jim Tracy, the co-authors of a great new book called Running with Robots, the American High School's Third Century. Uh, Co-author Greg Tapo is a well-known journalist. Uh, Greg did a long stint at uh, USA Today, where I got to know him. Um, Greg, it it looks like you uh, had a lot of fun uh, writing Running with Robots. Is that right? Oh, my goodness. We we had a ton of fun. Um, I I attribute most of that to Jim, who was was the evil genius who dreamed up the um, 
the idea of sort of casting the reader forward 20 years to a, a fictional uh, high school and a, a principal who falls asleep one day and wakes up um, 20 years later and goes to visit his old school. When I when I read the reviews and saw that that was the case, that every other chapter was this flash forward, it made me nervous because I thought it would suck. But it was it was it was so great, uh, and I I was guessing that that might have been Jim's uh, evil genius. Uh, it's really a cool book because Jim just did a beautiful job of combining kind of the history of the last twenty years and then sort of a history of the future, at least uh, the next twenty years. And Greg, you um, I think you were fortunate. Uh, work with a guy like uh, Dr. James Tracy, a Stanford-trained historian who's led uh, a lot of America's best uh, independent schools. Uh, Jim, it's really great to have you back on the on the podcast. I I thought I might recognize your uh, your voice when you said um, that you uh, you call out training um, our students uh, to be computers with a focus on hand calculations that de- uh, that allow only a dedicated few uh, to squeak past the laborious calculations to see the beauty and inherent uh, usefulness of, uh, of mathematics. I, I thought that might be your critique. Um, I think you, you must have enjoyed working on this project with Greg. Oh, it was great fun. And um, very. I feel very fortunate. Uh, I, I love those images, uh, and they sort of do a walking tour of the, the guy's uh, old high school, and you every one of those chapters ends with a cliffhanger, and it's like, I can't wait to get back and see uh, the next uh, classroom that they visit. That was really a compelling um, and generally optimistic uh, picture of the future. Yeah, we, we, we tried to, I mean, my conception of it was that it was sort of like, um, you know, Socrates and his pupils just sort of walking in the, you know, in the, in the, um, the Athenaeum or, you know, just sort of, and, and really the, I, I think the, the thing at least that I liked as much as anything about it was it gave the, the, the principal from 2020 ch- a chance to ask some really kind of stupid questions um, to the, to the principal in 2040 um, which I think is where we are now. Like, you know, we, <laughs> We have a lot of stupid questions, but we want to ask them. Yeah, that no, was well played. Um, Jim, uh, I'll ask you the sort of mirror question I asked Greg at the outset, this three C's curriculum. It's kind of the corollary to the three C's economy, but the three C's curriculum are, are creativity, caring, and, and uh, collaboration. You see those as being really key in the future, right? We do. And, and um, you know, I, I think that, I'm glad you asked the question in this way, Tom, too, because I think it's very insightful that it really captures the process Greg and I undertook in that we sort of asked um, uh, practitioners and thought leaders who were at the cutting edge of AI, what are the things that are not going to be eclipsed in the foreseeable future by artificial intelligence? What will what are almost certainly going to remain in the human domain? And then we wanted to sort of capture those and reverse engineer what would be the curricula and what would be the jobs that, um, that we could reverse engineer from those. And so we felt that what we're probably going to see, and it may, may be optimistic, uh, but we, we kind of made a choice to be optimistic. And part of the impetus of the book, too, was um, 
Greg and I began this project uh, shortly after the election of 2016. And we both felt that we wanted to speak to the anger, which was probably fed by fear on the part of much of the, or a certain portion of the electorate. And we wanted to uh, show people that there was a viable and optimistic path forward if we made the right decisions as a society. And so um, in terms of the 3C economy of the, the caring, cyber curating, and creating economy, the corollary is that in the K through 12 or K through 16 um, educational system, we really need to stop trying to um, train everybody to multidisciplinary uh, content fluency. Uh, that is taking up all of our time. And it really is teaching back to the 20th century knowledge economy. What we need to embrace is that the algorithms are increasingly going to be the, um, the domain of the knowledge fluency. And uh, the human component to that is we want people to have sufficient uh, content literacy, not fluency, content literacy across all domains to be able to, A, confirm that what the com algorithms are telling us simply makes sense, uh, B, make sure that what the algorithms are telling us in terms of possible solutions to problems we input are um, ethical and, um, and humane and humanizing, and C, um, be able to be creative with uh, ways in which, say, origami could, inf could inform the unfolding of a solar panel for a space, space flight, um, seeing the connections that uh, would be the unique human insights. Um, what do we do with the time that's freed up in the school day from having to get everybody to content fluency uh, and now only getting them to content literacy? We spend that time on process fluency, which are all the 21st century skills that we've all been talking about for the last quarter century. Um, you know, teamwork, iteration, grit, uh, creativity, and some that haven't been discussed enough, I think, such as um, um, being able to be comfortable with accelerating change, um, being able to retain linearity of, of analysis amidst electronic distractibility. Um, these are the process and human skills that we can spend our t more of our time. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Jim. You talked about uh, collective intelligence. Um, you, you, and this is the idea of, of smart teams working with smart machines in, in uh, efficient and ethical ways. It, I, uh, we talked to Jimmy Marisotis earlier this year about his book, um, Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines. I think Jamie also did a nice job describing this collective um, man-machine uh, intelligence taking on big problems. Um, anything you want to add to that notion of collective intelligence? Well, um, I would just add it, uh, uh, that, um, you know, studies have consistently found that with the artificial intelligence systems that we have now, which granted are, are still um, nascent and uh, narrow, um, nonetheless, it's quite consistent that a human and, and an algorithm working together are more powerful and efficacious than either working alone. And that's true, too. You know, if you take um, a Deep Blue, which uh, beat Kasparov uh, in the, in the uh, World, World Chess uh, Championship uh, uh, between AI and humans, um, 
Deep Blue actually loses to a an average grandmaster and an a- average sort of middle of the road AI working together. Um, I would I'd love to uh, fly through a couple of the future state uh, characteristics that I uh, that I loved most. So Topo, why um, travel as part of the curriculum? I love that. Uh, Rumpel was surprised by that, but why, why did you uh, see travel as part of the future curriculum? I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, it's kind of getting back to sort of uh, some of the characteristics that Jim talked about a second ago, you know, this idea of sort of like grit and um, just really allowing students to kind of um, develop a, a, a way to um, to find themselves in any context and be able to operate. Um, you know, in un- very unfamiliar contexts too. You know, we in, in the chapter where we talk about travel, when, you know, we we talk to a couple of students who who find these trips they take, and they're not like you know these aren't you know year long trips. Some of them are just like a week or two. Um, you know, but they they find themselves in these just strange situations, or or you know, dining in someone's home, and um, you know, in South Africa, and it, they're just they stick with uh, these young people in a way that nothing else does and really equips them um, with, with the kinds of characteristics we want, which is to kind of like, not just think on your feet, but also just like sort of consider who other people are and how you treat them um, and how to just, how to be sort of a better, more interesting person. That was actually a big surprise to me. You know, when, when we started thinking about some of these things, um, um, I, I really, um, you know, that was one of the things that just was one of those ideas that just wouldn't go away, you know? No, I, I love that. Uh, Greg, we, we wrote a book called The Power of Place that came out the day the uh, WHO declared a, a global pandemic, and it, it argued for community as classroom, and, uh, and suddenly it was. Um, but travel uh, is probably the best preparation for the VUCA world, right? Because it like I remember landing in Moscow and nothing's in English and your credit card doesn't work and you know everything is new and different and uh, and complex. So I really appreciated that. Um, Jim, who who in the world cooked up this art and biology fusion to create new life forms? That was very cool and unexpected. Was that your Evil genius? No, you know that comes out out of. Um, I, I was uh, blessed to ha- have um, uh, a really a wonderful series of in- interactions with um, Freeman Dyson when he was a visiting scholar from from Princeton at, at BU, where I was at at the time. And we had a series of conversations. And over lunch one time, he told me his vision that someday people would, um, everyday people would be um, genetically engineering these uh life forms as art forms uh just for just for the aesthetic pleasure of it you know you can imagine this happening at high tech high where they infuse art into into everything um greg the the holographic hemingway was that uh, was that your ad that that was something i had been thinking about and and just kind of just it sort of of kicked into reality once i just started um uh writing it um, and it actually was was one of those ideas that was in the air. Um, um, it, it actually, the, the most direct influence that I could think of was this, um, the Shoah Foundation, you know, Spielberg's 
Foundation, which which collects the stories of um, Holocaust survivors. You know, they're they've been for a couple of years now. They've been working on this um, project where they they film Holocaust survivors over the course of you know twelve hours of video, just to get through this you know massive um, archives of of them answering questions basically. And then they match it to a, sort of the most likely questions that, that somebody would ask them. And it, and they sort of seamlessly edit them into these voice-activated, um, basically, interactions, you know, video interactions. And I thought that it's so cool, but it's just the beginning <laughs> because, because you're interacting with a piece of video. What if you could interact with the actual text um, and, and have it, you know, superimposed on the image and the voice of Hemingway, which, you know, Every day, it's so funny because Jim and I were constantly swapping these clips from from the news. Every day, something comes up where I say, "Hey, didn't we write about this? Was, didn't we say this would be twenty years in the future?" And so, every day, these things preserve come come to be uh, closer. It was a, a cool vision of a immersive humanities, right? I, I, in some respects, it's, it's connected that idea of place, but but also visiting um, in in time and space, the ability to uh, really interrogate um, a past time or, or a, a future time. And speaking of holograms, I love the, the holographic teams idea in a couple of respects. One that you could you could be working on a team uh, with, with members from all over the world. <laughs> because we're working with a bunch of international schools, I also love the uh, the idea that you could click. Send my AI avatar to that meeting at 4 a.m. So I don't, have, I don't have to get out of bed. But uh, what, what about these holographic teams? What you, you see that materializing soon? I, I, I actually, I mean, um, I literally saw a demo of this the other day. Um, it wasn't quite the, the the fanciful version that Jim and I envision, but yeah, it's it's a kind of a hollow holographic, you know, cabinet. Um, I mean, in some respects, the, you know, Zoom teams that were instantly created uh, two years ago were kind of a, an early version of this, that suddenly we, we all work on virtual teams and often teams that are remote. So it uh, feels like this is another example of the future showing up faster than we yeah. anticipated. And very, you know, and very comfortable with it. I mean, it doesn't have its issues, right? You know, there are lots of, I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea of, you know, the, the research showing, you know, people having body image issues because they're spending all day on Zoom kind of staring at their, Ill, you know, ill-lit face. Um, so there's a lot more, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot more people using Botox now because they can't stand how their face looks. But, but yeah, it, we, we adjust very quickly. I, I just wanted to play off of something that Greg said. Um, we actually... Uh, we we finished writing this manuscript uh, two and a half to three years ago. It just takes takes a while for it to work its way through the through the press, and um, we felt that we were being quite prescient and that we were years ahead. And we've been uh, frantically trading uh, these little snippets with each other over the last uh, two or three years, and uh, increasingly anxious that we were shifting from being prescient. To, um, if they didn't get the book out soon, we would sound like we were behind the times and merely derivative. Um, it just speaks to how how quickly things are, in fact, uh, moving. All right, Jim, this um, this part of the book just made me stand up and cheer. So on page 76, you talk about this 
crowdsourced uh, water project. And I'll, I'll just read, um, I'll read Rumpel's um, observation as he, as he watches this young lady um, who's crowdsourcing with thousands of teens around the world, uh, um, working with a, an AI uh, assist. Um, and Rumpel notes, you've developed a model of a highly individualized project-based learning that instills in students the skills to organize a global hive of collective intelligence that they use via computational thinking with their AI assist, culminating in an engineered proposition to solve real world challenges. And then they present it effectively to a live global audience of experts and investors. Man, that's a great picture of what high school can and should be in the, uh, in the very near future. Love that. Absolutely. <clears throat> and and to, to me, you know, one of the things I, I didn't stand up and cheer like you, but, but it, it is kind of a, it's really a mouthful and really kind of an, a, an amazing vision of what's possible. Um, it is. Yeah. No, the, I, my, my last book was called difference making and it argued for all of these elements of projects that matter to the learner and the community, usually taken on in teams, often using uh, powerful new tools and then, you know, presenting that work publicly. Uh, so I, I love all the elements of that. And the cool thing is, I mean, and this, Tom, if you, if you don't mind me kind of turning things back on you a little, I mean, the, the, the cool thing is, yes, we do spend a lot of time 20 years in the future, but, you know, as, as your work shows, um, you know, there are a ton of educators doing this, a version of this right now. Um, I mean, you, you know, I mean, one of the things that I think was exciting to me as we were researching and writing this book was, you know, you were spending all your time, you know, going to these places where like, oh man, well, I wish we could go there. Wow. Look at this. Did you see where, you know, look at where he went now. And I, I mean, it, to me, it was really, um, I mean, you know, talk about uh, just a, an embarrassment of riches in a way, I mean, we, and, it's, and it's not the way we often think about our school system, um, but I think we're in a way we're forced to because there are a lot of people thinking in these terms. There are a lot of people taking projects seriously, taking teamwork seriously, taking you know community service seriously, um, and doing some really just kind of amazing stuff. Yeah. No, I, I love all the schools that you mentioned in the book. Thanks for the shout out to uh, Science Leadership Academy, SLA in Philadelphia, Iowa Big in Cedar Rapids. Uh, Jim, you, you told some stories from uh, from Rock Hill, but uh, just love all the, and great point, Greg, that there's great things happening uh, around the edges uh, all over the country, all over the world, people doing um, what you described in the 20, 2040 vision, and they're doing it today. Yeah, and I think, I mean, to me, I think like it's it's almost like malpractice if we don't look at them and see what they're doing and learn from them. Um, I mean, that's, you know, to me, that's sort of like their highest purpose is not just to, not just to serve, you know, a couple dozen or a couple hundred kids, but to serve everybody, you know, as a model. So. Jim, on uh, page 98, you talked about the uh, kindergartenization of the entire school. What does that mean? Yeah. Picking up on, on, um, the comments that you and Greg have made about the fact that there are practitioners out there who are really sort of engendering uh, 
new paradigms that uh, we can live into for for this uh, brave new world. Um, the um, the sort of obverse of the same coin is that um, we don't have to create everything ex nihilo, and uh, in fact, much of what's at the core of what Greg and I are envisioning is a recapitulation of a, of a core humanities curriculum, and one one that is very familiar to educators. Um, it includes certainly um, uh, some elements that one would find at the very center of Dewey's vision. Uh, even uh, Rousseau's Emile, Montessori. So for teachers to begin to embrace and, and adumbrate these is not necessarily or at all going to mean that they have to be immersed in the completely unfamiliar. Um, and kindergarten, in fact, is a real model for, for what we're envisioning in terms of uh, hands-on, real-world, creative, collaborative uh, project-oriented learning. And um, and if you go back to the 19th century, Mitch, uh, Mitch Resnick discusses this in his book, but most educators would already be familiar with the fact that the kindergarten movement came out of a very explicit sort of ideology around that in Germany in the 19th century. And what I was struck by when we tried to incorporate uh, a, uh, a very, uh, if I could just start that again, what I was struck by at Rocky Hill School when we tried to really integrate these models into um, the entire K through 12 continuum was that the consistent leaders of our faculty were the kindergarten teachers. Like um, the two of you, my study of the uh, near future leaves me uh, quite par- paradoxical. I think I'm I'm um, excited and optimistic about the opportunity, and I am pretty freaked out by a number of their risks, particularly growing inequality and and the way that uh, AI and machine learning and exponential tech largely sort of with the pandemic and with climate change are like a triple ratchet on uh, inequity. In in the book, you went into a discussion of of a guaranteed uh, basic income and, and sort of a guaranteed universal access to basic healthcare. Are those a couple of the examples of, of, of some of the elements of the new social contract that you think need to be in place to, to deal with this widening um, inequality? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if we come down really hard on, on, on either side of this. Certainly, I would, you would say that you know, everybody needs access to health care. Um, I don't know how, um, how universal basic income or UBI, UBI or whatever we want to call it, um, uh, sits in terms of the, the the bigger picture of this. Um, I mean, one of I think one of the things that we we looked at um, was some of the research showing that um, you know UBIs have sort of mixed it's sort of a mixed blessing, and they they have sort of uh, um, uh, mixed results based on sort of number one how well they're administered or, you know, kind of what people can expect. So I, I don't know. And I, and I think, I mean, I think if there's anything that we, um, maybe one of the things we don't explore as much as we could is, is the idea of inequality. Um, and, and, you know, and maybe, maybe Jim has a, a, a sense of that, that I don't, but I, I do feel like um, we, we didn't, we didn't attack that head on. 
Well, it's a it's an education book. I, I guess I'm just uh, acknowledging the, um, um, you know, as you surface in the book, the unintended consequences of, of AI are worth considering, and they're a, a, a long list. And I, I appreciated in the uh, several times in the book you you talked about cyber uh, ethical um, considerations and and making that a, a core part of the uh, curriculum. So surfacing these current issues and inviting young people to be part of the uh, solution around this new social contract. Well, I definitely think we, we should be teaching young people to be skeptical about uh, technology. Um, that, that, you know, inequality or not, I think everybody needs to learn that. I mean, I, I, I one of my favorite um, uh, conversations in the book is um, where we quote um, uh, uh a tech writer who says, um, you know, who poses the really interesting question: Should you should should young children be polite to, to uh, Alexa? Um, and you know, and you know, most of us would say, of course we should, of course they should, you know, um, uh, because everybody should be polite to everybody else. And then, um, you know, the, the the issue really becomes, well, you know, that goes down a slippery slope because then you start to think of Alexa as a person. And she's she's nothing, you know, of the sort. Um, and the you know the, the the analogy he uses is that you wouldn't say please to a jar of peanut butter as you're trying to get it open. <laughs> uh, and that's the way we should tr- treat Alexa. You know, she's just a dumb machine. No, these are they're going to be live issues for the future. Um, Jim, I, w- I want to talk about um, updating student learning goals. One observation um, that you. You make in the book, um, the the time traveler um, says, "What will be key? What will be the key value proposition um, that humans bring ten or fifteen or twenty years from now, and how they work collaboratively, uh, increasingly with intelligent systems?" So I, I I love that idea of of, of encouraging faculties to think hard, uh, probably with community partners about those those key skills and dispositions likely to be most valuable um, in the future. And so g- given that, are you optimistic about the fact that hundreds of uh, communities in this country and around the world are sort of updating their student learning goals, developing new learner profiles or portrait of a graduate, often uh, prioritizing a lot of the skills that you talk about in the book? Are you, you optimistic about that? Um, I would have to sort of uh, give a parsed answer to, to that question, Tom. It's a really good question. And uh, I think that um, I'm optimistic by the fact that we have opportunity to make a lot of really leveraged and informed decisions that will, um, that will be transformational for our educational outcomes. Um, am I optimistic that we will make those choices? Um, I go back to Antonio Gramsci's uh, data dictum of uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Um, I think that uh, history would suggest that we have not consistently made these decisions to pivot in an adroit way for um, the types of educational changes, the types of educational reforms that we so desperately need. But um, I refuse to accept that we won't. And and I want to I want to thank you too for your for your um, vision and leadership uh, at, at the very forefront of 
of um, encouraging our country to make those decisions. You've been um, an inspiration to, to so many of us in that regard. Like you uh, t- trying to figure all this out. I'm curious, Greg, what um, what parts of the future state were the hardest to figure out or maybe the most surprising? You know, I, I guess when it, when it came right down to it, um, there's this idea, you know, I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid thinking about, I was born in the 60s, you know, I remember that when I was a kid thinking, you know, what it will be like in the year 2000. I'm sure you guys grew up doing the same thing. And then I remember reading like a sign, like a popular science piece or can't remember what it was. And, and, and I literally, I think I was sitting in the dentist office and I, and I remember picking up this magazine piece and it said in the year 2000, pretty much everyone will be living in the same homes they're living in now. And, and it just like knocked me sideways. I thought, what the hell? I'm going to be living in like, you know, a space house, you know, like circling the globe or, you know, I mean, you know, things will be totally different. Come on. And I guess, I guess I'm sort of taking that idea forward in in, in this book. I mean, a lot of what we do, a lot of what we do with one another, I think will be the same. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the things we want students to learn, um, a lot of the, the aspirations we have for them will be the same. Um, I just think we have to we have to think of them in a different context, um, and and think of them you know in slightly different ways. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a kind of a weird sideways way of answering your question, but all right, I, I'm going to mention two insights that I took from the book and invite you to to add a, a third. The the first was given this this volatile, unpredictable future of working with smart machines, that the, the focus on uh, creating and problem solving, often in teams, often with smart tools, is is really, I think, a, a, a vital insight. The second is subtracting, that to make more space for that, there's some stuff that we have to do less of, and we're not very good at that, particularly in America. We just keep adding stuff to what we ask of schools. And I think your book was quite good at describing the things that we're doing less of and the things that we need to do more of. And so, Greg, as you mentioned earlier, this isn't whole cloth something new. It is a matter of of valuing, creating and problem solving in teams, caring um, and doing less content memorization, content regurgitation. So those are two big insights. Would you Add, uh, Jim, you want to add anything to that as an important insight for ed leaders? I would say the recentralizing of, of the humanities, because so much of what we're going to be doing uh, in a cobiotic, uh, in a, sorry, so much of what we're going to be doing in a cobotics society and work environment will entail the human's uh, input around values. And so um, that's, that's, um, as an example, we're, go, we're going to have to have people who are not just um, engineers working with algorithms, but people who also can anticipate what are the values we want this algorithm to make when it's unleashed on its own into the world, and uh, who is also spot checking when with what value um, education uh, we'll be spot checking to make sure that there are no unintended consequences. Love that. Greg, any, any other uh, insights you want to underscore for ed leaders? 
I mean, I, I think uh, along the lines of what you were saying, um, Tom, I mean, I think it's a really healthy exercise for people as they're thinking about the future to say, is there anything we're doing we shouldn't be doing? <laughs> Are there things that don't make sense anymore? Um, the, the, you know, the one that to me sort of jumps out um, and I think will piss a lot of people off, um, but I think is worth thinking about is uh, uh, foreign language, you know, teaching foreign languages that is requiring everyone to have years and years learning a foreign language. Um, we, we don't say it's a thing you shouldn't do. We just say it's a thing that should be put in its place. Yeah. It's interesting, Greg. I, I, I was a, a big advocate until, uh, recently and I went onto a Google meet and I clicked closed captioning and then you, you can pick whatever language you want to caption in and suddenly, it feels uh, a bit less um, urgent than it uh, it was in the past. So, appreciate you at least. I mean, technology allowed us to go to these places where we needed to speak Spanish, right? And now it's allowing us to to speak Spanish without knowing Spanish. So let's keep moving. Hey, we're talking about running with robots, the American high school's third century. It's a terrific new book by Greg Tapo and Jim Tracy. Everybody ought to read this book, um, get it, um, share it with your faculty. Um, this is a great book for high schools, for colleges. It's a great book for um, book studies um, to take on. It's a terrific book. It's a fun book. It'll make you laugh out loud. <laughs> It'll occasionally make you angry. Uh, Jim and Greg, what a, what a treat to have you guys on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks to our producer, Mason Pasha, uh, and everybody, uh, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Um, keep learning and keep innovating for equity. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.